lovely Maple Grove, Minnesota, and SixFootMama.com. This is Still Growing with Jennifer Ebling. Still Growing is a gardening podcast dedicated to helping you and your garden grow. Hi there, everyone, and welcome to Still Growing, and thank you for listening. I'm your host, Jennifer Ebling. In today's show, I'm sharing my presentation from the 2017 Schoolyard Gardens Conference at the Minnesota Landscape Arboretum, where I spoke about 10 ways to engage kids in the garden. How do you get kids interested in gardening? That's a question I get asked most often, and it's a big question because kids have sophisticated lives these days. So I'm going to share my thoughts on this topic and some lessons I've learned from working with kids in my own garden. That's coming up after the Garden News Roundup. But first, I'd like to start out with a reminder about our Facebook group. It's free and easy to join, and all you have to do is go to Facebook and search for Still Growing Podcast Group, and then request to join, or go to my website at sixfootmama.com. That's the number six, F-T-M-A-M-A.com, and right in the main menu is a link to the Facebook group. So if you have a hard time finding it in Facebook, you can easily find it on my website. And if you're listening to this episode and like what you hear, you should definitely join the group. Not only are there great giveaways for listeners, and the Facebook group is the only place I go to pick winners for any giveaways, but in addition to sharing news and conversations about gardening, I'm I'm planning to organize some meetups at public gardens around the United States. So if you're not yet a member of the listener community on Facebook, I would love for you to join for free. Just head over to Facebook, search for Still Growing Podcast Group, and then click to join. Or head on over to my website at sixfootmama.com, and you can click to join there as well. Well, now it's time for the Garden News Roundup. These are just a handful of the curated posts that I've collected over the past week, and they've all been shared in the free Facebook group. So if you hear something and want to read the full article, just head on over to the group. You'll find it all there. You do not need to take notes. I always like to start the Garden News Roundup with a guest update, and I have a number of guest updates this week. The first one I wanted to share with you is from Peggy Ann Montgomery, American Beauty's Native Plants. Peggy was on the show earlier this year talking about native plants, and I noticed in Garden Design Magazine that she has a giveaway going on where you can win a collection of 15 butterfly-attracting plants if you're a U.S. resident. All you have to do is enter to win, and you just head on over to Garden Design Magazine, and the contest lasts until Friday, March 31st at 3 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. So I'll have a link to that contest in the show notes for today's episode, as well as a posting in the Facebook group for our listener community. The second giveaway is from a future guest. Jennifer Prince and I are doing kind of a follow-up to this episode, today's episode, where she's interviewing me, and we're talking about how I use student gardeners 
in my garden to help me throughout the year. So this particular giveaway is sponsored by American Meadows and High Country Gardens, and they are celebrating their love of plants by giving away a life-changing trip for two people to one of our nation's botanic gardens. So you get to pick the botanic garden, and then they will supply the plane tickets for you and a lucky friend. Plus, you get a four-night hotel stay and spending money for food and extras. So the question is, where would you go? Where is your favorite botanic garden? Enter this contest, and you just might win a chance to get an all-expense-paid trip there. In addition, there are weekly prizes. There are $50 gift certificates that are awarded every single week. And I will have a link to this giveaway as well in the Facebook group. My friend Jen McGinnis shared a couple of fun things with me this week that I thought you'd enjoy listening to. First up, well, of course, she's known as Frau Zinni from her blog, Frau Zinni, and I interviewed her last summer. Jen shared this really fun way that she has of organizing her seed packets for seed sowing. And basically, she uses a clear shoe holder that would go over the back of the door, and she puts her seeds in the shoe holder and then labels the front of them with a, a little post-it or a little piece of paper that simply says how many weeks out that she has to use that grouping of seeds. So the image she shared with me had seed packets in one of those shoe holders, and it said 10 weeks before, and then she gives the date, February 13th. And then the next one says nine weeks before, and then she says February 20th, and so on. But I thought it was an ingenious way to organize seeds and get kind of some system in place for seed sowing. So I really appreciated that. And then I really wanted to direct your attention to Jen's blog. She's at frauzenny.com, and she is my garden chore expert. I love how Jen organizes garden chores. So how she does her garden chores, I, I wanted to walk you through this, is first she sets up things that she calls main priorities. So these are the must-dos for the month. So she's kind of prioritized these. And then the next category is called this would be nice. And of course, in this category for March, she has pruning. And then the last thing is this category is called if all the stars align. And then she's got cleanup and some other chores there. So I love the way that Jen has organized these garden chores every single month. And I'm hoping to have her on at least once a month moving forward to review her garden chores with us because I love hearing other people's to-do lists in the garden. And even if that particular to-do doesn't pertain to me, it always seems to stimulate some thought around something I should be doing in my garden. So I think that would be a really fun thing to have her on the show and do a segment like that once a month. Eric Sanrud of Mighty Axe Hops reached out to me. I had interviewed Eric last fall, and we had talked about his hops growing operation. He's the one of the co-owners of Mighty Axe Hops and kind of my go-to guy for learning about hops. Anyway, Eric had reached out to me on Twitter, and he said, hey, I just want to let you know that our new grower's guide is now available for a free download. And he's like, thought you would like to know. So you can go to his blog right now, his website, head on over to Mighty Axe Hops. Hops.com, and you will be 
be able to, if you just scroll down, there's a big orange bar and it says, want to grow hops? You can download the second edition Grower's Guide completely free. This is just something that Eric does for folks who share his passion for growing hops and the guide is very well done. All right, so that's it for the guest update segment. Moving on to sustainability, there were two posts that made it into sustainability this week. The first was an article that I found from housebeautiful.com, and I saw it in a few spots on Facebook as well in some of the gardening groups. But it's just a reminder that before you begin trimming your bushes this spring, check for nests. Check especially for really tiny nests like hummingbird nests because they can be very often easily overlooked. And so it's important to kind of inspect what you're pruning in the spring. So that article I really liked. And they have a picture of a hummingbird nest with eggs in it. You would not believe how tiny, how miniature this is. The eggs, they said, are about the size of jelly beans. I've never seen a hummingbird nest in person. And I can see where if you're not paying attention, you could easily prune off the branch that this nest was on. So be very careful about that. And then also in sustainability was a very inspiring piece I found on how cauliflower seeds are helping a poverty-stricken village in India become prosperous. In fact, what I found very interesting about the article is that the Indian people that they were featuring in this article were very educated. So it wasn't for lack of education. They just didn't have job opportunities available to them to lift them out of poverty. So instead, they become cauliflower farmers. And this one gentleman is standing in front of a huge field of cauliflower. So he's an urban farmer. He grows one crop, and it's cauliflower and it's lifting his family out of poverty. And it's not just him. There are other people that are doing this as well. So I found that article very interesting in the sustainability segment this week. In the continuing ed segment this week, I wanted to draw your attention to two resources. The first is goodgardeningvideos.org. This is a website that's dedicated to accurate information and inspiring gardens. GoodGardeningVideos.org is nonprofit and ad-free, so you're never going to see all of those ads that can distract you or be annoying as you're trying to watch a video on their website. And I think they have a very worthy mission statement. It's threefold. First, they want to inspire people to garden and help them succeed as gardeners. Second, they want to help improve the environment by inspiring the public to plant more plants and to garden in a way that protects the environment. And then finally, they want to elevate the role of universities, public gardens, local garden centers, and evidence-based garden communication as sources of gardening inspiration. Anyway, Susan Harris is very involved in this project, and she brought to my attention their three guides for spring that they have on their homepage, and I wanted to walk you through some of what's available to you. It's completely free, and they have worked very hard to collect the best videos on these important topics for gardening for spring. So here we go. These are the guides that are available for you completely free on the website, and they have a number of videos that go along with each one of these topic areas. So the first one is 
is Guide to Enlightened Lawn Care in Spring. And it starts out with kind of an overview with the question, what does your lawn really need this spring? And it gives a nice little summary by Extension Associate Lori Brewer, author of Cornell's excellent Turf Grass Info for the Public. It talks about raking and dethatching in early spring. There's a great video on how to get started in early spring with Paul Tukey showing how to assess winter damage and then rake. They address feeding and seeding, and then they offer three videos all about fertilizing and spring fertilizing and spring lawn care. And then they wrap up this segment with how to repair bare patches. And there are a couple of great videos that cover this as well. The remaining two guides cover planting trees, shrubs, and perennials, as well as pruning spring flowering shrubs. And I was talking with Patricia Chandler Newport about this. She's on the listener advisory board for Still Growing. She's in the Facebook group as well. And she and I were both talking about how we could do a show on pruning probably every quarter because that's always such a great topic for people. There are always a ton of questions around pruning. These videos will give you a great jump start on that. So specifically with regard to pruning, there are two videos here that are very well done. One is by horticulturalist Melinda Myers, and it's just very general. It's called Shrub Pruning Advice. And then there's one that's called How to Make Pruning Cuts, and it's from the University of Kentucky. So again, these are two reliable sources that should give you a very quick primer with wonderful information and tips on how to prune. Then specifically, when it comes to spring, they have a wonderful number of videos that are available that are under the heading called Spring Pruning for Shrubs. There's one by the University of Illinois Extension. It's called When Not to Prune Spring Flowering Shrubs. The second one is by the University of Maine, and it's called How to Prune for Scythia. This is one I'll be watching. And what's fantastic about this is they show a forsythia that's completely overgrown, that has never been pruned that's completely out of control. A lot of people end up with a forsythia that looks like this. They're very fast growing. I consider it kind of a shrub weed, if you will, in our area. They get out of control very quickly. So this video is going to be on my watch list. And then the third video is all about rhododendrons. And it says, rhododendrons are difficult to prune, but here's how. And this is by Cass Turnbill, a very good video on pruning rhododendrons. And then what I think of as kind of the rhododendron sister, Azaleas. Also a video by Cass Turnbill. She's the founder of Plant Amnesty, and she does a great job in this video. And then this whole segment wraps up with this area that's called infrequent radical rejuvenation. And just by way of explanation, it says right here, rejuvenation is used when multi-stemmed plants become too large with too many stems. In other words, the shrub is a tangled mess. Radical rejuvenation means removing all the stems down to four to six inches from the ground. And I love doing this. I get a lot of satisfaction out of doing this. And I remember the first time I told my mom and dad to do this with their wajilia. And they both kind of looked at me like, what are you talking about? And then they did it, and their wajilia came back bigger and better than ever. And now every year, they let me know, hey, we pruned our wajilia back. And I just have to laugh because it's just this wonderful magic, right, of pruning plants that sometimes those severe haircuts make such a tremendous difference in growth and appearance. 
Anyway, good gardening videos should be bookmarked on your web browser. You can have confidence in these videos. They've all been screened. They've all been found to be useful, watchable, and free of statements contrary to known evidence. And I'd also suggest that you head on over to their website to sign up for updates because you'll get one to two emails per month about any newly added videos. So bottom line, good gardening videos is worth checking out. And I would say that for any gardener, this website is a wonderful source for reliable continuing education. So go ahead and check it out. There were five additional articles that made it into the continuing ed segment this week, and they all had to do with seed starting, something that a lot of gardeners are working on or thinking about getting going on right now. The first was a really great video that was from Peaceful Valley Grow Organic, and it's all about seed germination. And specifically, Trisha in this video shares tips on how to get those tough-to-germinate seeds to sprout. This is a great resource. NaturallivingIdeas.com shared 15 advanced seed-starting secrets you won't learn at the Garden Center. This was shared last year on St. Patrick's Day. I thought the content was good enough to share again this year, so I shared that in the group as well. The woman behind FlorettFlowers.com shared shared a great post on seed starting basics. I thought this would be a great article for folks to read who are just starting seed starting. And then I found this really great article from hobbyfarms.com. And it talks about sowing seeds with seeding gel. I had not heard of seeding gel before. Jessica Walliser wrote this piece on March 10th, 2017. And she walks us through how to use seeding gel. And here's what she wrote. She said, seeding gel isn't nearly as time-consuming as making a seed tape, but the seeds aren't as perfectly spaced either. It's the ideal method if you don't need your seeds to be uniformly spaced. You just don't want them to end up being too close together. She said, when I use seeding gel, I save myself the trouble of having to thin the seedlings later in the season. It's quick, efficient, and frankly, kind of fun. And then she gives her recipe for the gel, and it includes one tablespoon of cornstarch, one cup of water, and then you stir that together, and that's your gel. You put it in a saucepan, and you bring it to boil for a minute. Now, when the mixture has cooled completely, you spoon off the skin that forms on the very, very top of the gel, and then you spoon the remaining gel into a Ziploc bag. And then you just put a small number of seeds in the bag and stir it up so that they're evenly distributed. And what you'll see is that your seeds kind of evenly space themselves in the gel. So the image that I want you to think about would be, imagine if you had poured some milk into a bag and then had sprinkled salt and pepper in the milk. Maybe you were making oyster stew or something. That's about what this bag will look like once you have the seeds inside the gel. Anyway, I loved this method. And then Mr. Brown Thumb at blogspot.com shared a great post about seed scarification, seed stratification, and seed soaking. So I shared that post as well. And then I wanted to make sure I mentioned that I'd seen a tweet by Shauna Coronado, and I thought it was so clever. She said, my grandmother used to do seed scarification by rubbing small seeds on matchboxes. I love hearing tips like that. 
In the how-to DIY segment, there were two posts. The first was from treehugger.com, and it was the secret to cooking amazing vegetables. This is a brand new post they shared on St. Patrick's Day. And I won't get into all the details, but I will tell you the clue. They start out the article by saying it has to do with another food group. And the writer said, I've never understood why people don't treat vegetables like meat. It's a brilliant revelation. Why don't we? So, for instance, we'd never put a steak in a lukewarm pan or in a steam basket over a pot of simmering water. There's a reason why cooks take time to brown stewing beef before braising. And this article argues that vegetables are no different. Anyway, I loved this article. And then finally, in the how-to DIY segment, I wanted to draw your attention to a Facebook group that I have found to be super helpful this time of year, and actually you can use it all year long, and it's called Winter Sowing Vegetable Gardening. So this is sowing vegetables in milk jugs, and I love this group. Great advice, great tips, very active wonderful community, and it's led by Cheryl Mann. So the next time you're in Facebook, after you join the Still Growing Podcast group, check out Veggie Winter Sewing. In the Plant Spotlight this week, Country Living article did a really nice job of covering 12 facts that every lilac lover should know. And it won't be long before the lilacs are blooming, so check out this post before you do any cutting or before you consider planting a lilac tree. Lots of good information in this post. Last week, I mentioned this fantastic term, super bloom, that's referring to the California deserts that are having this super bloom thanks to a wet winter. And there were so many articles that I saw online all about the super bloom. So I shared a number of them this week in the group. The first one was from NPR, and it talks about the nature of the super bloom and what people are doing. And it's talking about the fact that visitors have flocked from as far as Asia and Africa to see this rare floral bloom in the California desert. PopularScience.com said don't go to Death Valley looking for a super bloom, and that if you are looking for the super bloom, you have to choose your destination carefully. You can't assume that all deserts are going through this vibrant transformation. And they interviewed Linda Slater. She's the chief of interpretation at Death Valley National Park. And she says, if you're coming to Death Valley looking for flowers, you're going to be disappointed. There are almost no flowers in Death Valley this year. And apparently last year, there were gold flowers that blanketed the park for 30 miles, so it pays to do your homework ahead of time. LosAngelesCurbed.com showed the amazing, awe-inspiring growth of flowers in parks in Southern California. And then Wired.com showed nine magical photos of California's wild superbloom. These were from Walker Canyon and other locations, and they are absolutely jaw-dropping images. In the dream guest segment this week were two folks that I thought would be fantastic guests for the show. The first one is Andrea Cochran. She is doing a presentation on immersive landscapes at the Pacific Design Center on Wednesday, April 19th at 7 p.m. 
Andrea is an American landscape architect. She graduated from the Harvard Graduate School of Design, and she's one of seven designers that was featured in the 2012 documentary, Women in the Dirt. Anyway, I so wish that I would not be recovering from rotator cuff surgery and that I could go see her speak. Her presentation, again, is going to be at the Pacific Design Center in West Hollywood, California on Wednesday, April 19th. And then the other individual making my dream guest segment this week is Aaron Benzakine of Florette Flower Farm. And the Organic Gardener podcast had shared a great article called Grow, Harvest, and Arrange Seasonal Blooms. It was very inspiring. In science this week, there were two very interesting articles. One was from thedodo.com, and it was talking about koalas, because apparently koalas are dying of thirst. So apparently, people are making special drinking stations for them. So the article talks all about how koalas normally get the hydration they need from the eucalyptus leaves that they eat, but as drought and wildfires dry out their food supplies, the koalas are starting to drink water because they're just so thirsty. And this is an article, of course, based out of Australia. And then in Habitat.com, shared an incredible article about the first fluorescent frog that has been found in South America. And we're talking crazy fluorescent here. Like, imagine a green highlighter if you have one in your house, and then imagine it, like, hyped up by 10 times. That's what this frog looks like. Crazy fluorescent green. In the shopping category this week, I wanted to draw your attention to a great magazine that I personally love. It's called Gardens Illustrated. It's one of my top gardening publications that I love to read, and their March 2017 issue is beautiful, and the headline's called Celebrate Spring. So if you haven't checked that magazine out, it's worth going to buy that. I also wanted to draw your attention to a great paint color I stumbled on. It's the perfect medium blue. It's got a little bit of gray in it, but it's very pleasant. And these patinaed blues look so beautiful outside in the garden or even in your home. This one's called Lulworth Blue by Farrow and Ball. And Lulworth is spelled L-U-L-W-O-R-T-H and then Blue, Lulworth Blue by Farrell and Ball. And then rounding out the shopping segment this week is something I wanted to share with you regarding Facebook. If you go into Facebook and you type in a category of something that you're interested in, so for instance, let's say you type in the word seed and then starting, seed starting, you will find that any events in your area that pertain to seed starting will pop up in the notification segment. So for instance, in my own area, there are three seed starting workshops throughout Minneapolis that I had no idea about. So when it comes to shopping or finding resources, don't forget to search for things in Facebook. It's a great way to find local events. In the inspiration segment this week, The Guardian shared 10 best Instagram accounts for gardeners. So if you're a visual person, and I am, these are 10 accounts that you can follow to have a beautiful feed for your Instagram. And I loved all of these. I loved them all. And then finally, House Beautiful shared this great post that's called Meet Charlie McCormick, the floral designer you need to follow on Instagram. So both of these posts have to do with Instagram. 
But if you follow Charlie, you get to see the English countryside, gorgeous gardens, beautiful blooms. And Charlie is a native New Zealander who now resides in Dorset, England. He loves pinks, reds, and corals, and he gravitates to traditional English flowers. So this is a must-follow site. The photography is beautiful. Then in recipes this week, I shared two recipes that I am eager to try. The first is an easy lemon curd recipe, perfect for spring, perfect for Easter. And then finally, an article from Food 52. And I loved the title of this article. In fact, it's what caught my attention, and I intend to try this. It's called Treat Roasted Broccoli Like Nachos. Save Yourself a Trip to the Bar. And then basically what they do is they make roasted broccoli with nacho toppings. And they say you'll feel satisfied, but you won't make yourself sick. So they advise keeping your kitchen stocked with cheese, salsa, scallions, a can of beans, or maybe even a jar of jalapenos. And that's basically it. This looks tremendous. It's a great recipe. Well, that's it for the Garden News Roundup this week. And just a reminder that these are just a handful of the curated posts that I've collected over the past week, and they've all been shared in the Facebook group for listeners of the show. It's completely free. It's called the Still Growing Podcast Group. So if you hear something that you want to know more about, you want to read the full article, just head on over to Facebook, type in Still Growing Podcast Group, and request to join. I hope to meet you in there. Okay, today's show is all about how to keep kids engaged in the garden, and these are lessons that I've learned from my student gardeners, and I shared these at the Schoolyard Gardens Conference at the Minnesota Landscape Arboretum earlier this spring. In fact, I had a chance to interview Rick Sherman. He was the keynote speaker. He's in charge of the Oregon Farm to School and Schoolyard Garden Program. And I had a chance to interview him, and he's in an episode just a few weeks back. So go ahead and check that one out if you're interested in starting a schoolyard garden or if you already have one and you'd like to learn how to maximize it. Rick's got a lot of great ideas and experience around this. Now, coming up later in April, I'll have a show that I'm doing with Jennifer Prince of American Meadows. And she's actually going to be interviewing me on how I utilize student gardeners in my garden during the summer. So I consider that to be a part two to this episode, which I'll consider to be part one. So I'm going to share with you 10 lessons that I've learned from my student gardeners. And hopefully they can help you if you're thinking about having student gardeners help in your garden this spring or throughout the summer. Lesson one is teach in the now. Be very aware of when you're teaching. You're teaching in the year 2017. And I always like to tell people, these aren't your grandma's garden helpers. And to drive this point home, I showed some pictures that were dated in the early 1900s, and they showed kids working in schoolyard gardens. So all these kids had hoes in their hand, and they're working very diligently on these very large gardens. And I'll tell you a tip. None of them were smiling too much. They were coming from a rural background and then having to go to school and work at the schoolyard garden in addition to all of the other chores that they were doing back at home. And then I drove this point home with this quote that I used from William Blake. And he said, in seed time learn, in harvest teach, 
and in winter enjoy. And we just do not live in this kind of segmented, compartmentalized world. Thanks to modern technology, we can grow year-round. And I know actually no one who uses winter as a time to just kick back and enjoy. We can be doing something, even if it's continuing ed, all year long. And I know I've spoke about this book before in a few of my other interviews, but it's my favorite book this spring, and it's by Thomas Friedman, and it's called Thank You for Being Late. And it's all about how to survive in the age of acceleration. And of course, the three main accelerations that he mentions are Mother Nature, so that would be overpopulation or climate change, and biodiversity loss. The market, which of course is digital globalization, we've got Facebook, Twitter, PayPal, IoT, And then Moore's Law, which refers to this term that was coined by Gordon Moore in 1965. And it says that the speed and power of microchips will double every 24 months. And you take all of those accelerations and you contrast that with what Dr. Vivek Murthy says. And he sees patients in Boston. And he says that the most prevalent disease in America was not heart disease or diabetes. It's actually isolation, social disconnection. And so he recognizes, and Thomas Friedman argues, that people need community as a way to anchor themselves in the world. And so at this point in my presentation, I started talking to the audience about how important it is to tell kids that gardening is a way to anchor yourself in the world because gardening fosters social networks. You know, I started doing the Garden News Roundup before I would go into the main segment of the show for about the last five months now. And at least monthly, I've talked about articles that have shared some kind of research about how gardening is social connection. There was an article that I had shared from The Guardian that says that loneliness, affordability, and green spaces were the big challenges that were facing cities. A few weeks ago, I shared an article that was from conversation.com, and it was talking about urban farming in Africa that was producing more than just food. It was producing social networks, and that was something that researchers in South Africa never anticipated. And so in light of this crazy time that kids are growing up in, it's important to tell them that gardening can be a gateway out of isolation so that as they grow up, they not only see gardening as a skill to grow food or to grow beautiful flowers, but they see it as a way to connect with other people. I remember when I interviewed Megan Kane, the creative vegetable gardener, she talked about having this property that she and her husband had just bought. It was on a corner lot, and it had this terrible backyard space, and they started ripping it out and clearing it out, and they did what most good gardeners do, where they not only had a back garden, but they created a side garden. So this garden kind of starts to wrap around their house, and it drew the attention of of their neighbors who started coming over, introducing themselves, and then the next thing you know, they become friends, and then they meet their friends' friends, and it just goes on and on. So gardening as a source of friendship, as a way out of isolation, is an important message that kids need to hear. And it's part of gardening in the now. It's part of working with kids in 2017. And it's something I'm very passionate about. 
So I'd love for you to help me spread that message to kids that as they grow up, they recognize the full benefits of gardening, which extend well beyond edibles and well beyond arrangements or even herbalism, that they recognize that the health benefits can extend to their social well-being as well. Lesson number two is to be a cool finder. I started this lesson out by sharing a quote from Amy Stewart. She said that gardeners are inquisitive by nature. We are explorers. And then with the group, I shared a Venn diagram. So I've got these two circles that I share, and I have one circle that represents gardeners in general, and then another circle that represents kids. And where the two circles overlap, I put two important elements that I think provide common ground for both groups, kids and gardeners. The first is curiosity, and the second is excitement, meaning that both groups are very curious, and they're drawn to excitement, and they're excitable. And we know this is true, because if you've ever gone over to a friend's garden, and they're excited to show you this little bloom that they have in their garden, or this plant that they're growing, or someone in the Facebook group in the listener community showed this teeny tiny little seedling that they were just thrilled over the moon about, we know that excitement is just in gardener DNA. And so what I mean by this lesson is that if you're going to try to entice kids into gardening, you need to share exciting and cool things with them. So I gave the example of Apple's Campus 2 that's being created and will be finished this year. And if you show kids a picture of what Apple Campus 2 looks like, it is so cool. It looks like something from Jurassic Park. It's almost otherworldly, but it's very, very cool. It looks like a huge donut. And in the middle of it is this amazing, amazing garden. There is this huge atrium. And of course, Apple installed this because they know it's important to have the high tech married to something that can anchor them in the world. So right back to that Thomas Friedman book. Then I shared this super cool post where this woman is building tiny birdhouses for birds. These are houses that are created by Jada Fitch, which I thought she had a great name for this job that she's doing. But she's a Portland, Maine-based illustrator. And I shared these birdhouses as an inspiration for something that schoolyard garden educators could do with kids to create this miniature house and then take pictures of birds inside the house. These are birdhouses. They're like vignettes. They're three-sided. They have a top, a bottom, and three sides. And then she tapes them to her window. She fills the inside with seeds. And as birds come in and kind of inhabit these fully decked out cute little interiors, they almost look like dollhouses, she takes pictures of them. Kids would love this project. I talked about the Cabbage Master. This is a young boy named Cole Kaywood. He was nine years old, and last year he grew a 30-pound cabbage. That would excite kids. And once you hook them, you can talk about how he grew that cabbage. And the next thing you know, talking about how you're planting your crops becomes infinitely more interesting. I talked about the redwood tree that had the tunnel in it, that huge one that fell down in California earlier this year. You know, a hundred years ago, people looked at that tree and they thought, oh my gosh, this is amazing. There's a tree with a tunnel through it. We can drive through it. Today's kids 
can appreciate the cool factor of that, but they can also appreciate how harmful it was to that magnificent tree to hollow out the center and create a tunnel. So to talk to them about that pioneer cabin tree, that drive-through tree, in terms of how we care for trees on our own properties. And that can lead to discussions around how to properly plant a tree, how to care for a tree, how to prune a tree, and so forth. I think plant toxicity is a very cool thing for kids to learn about. They're drawn to it. So the very sad story of the big game that were dying in Idaho because they were eating deadly poisonous yew plants that were landscaping plants in Idaho earlier in February, that's a fascinating article. So as you're going around your property and you're showing kids toxic plants, you could talk about that story and share with them how the big game, these elk would come up, eat from the yew plant. And then the homeowner would just have to go outside and follow that elk, follow those tracks. And within about 30 to 50 feet, this huge animal would be laying dead in the snow. That's how toxic you plants are. I showed pictures of things from my own garden that I've used as a cool factor with kids. One of them was these brightly colored red berries. And the first time I saw this cluster of berries in my garden up toward my front porch, I thought, oh my gosh, this is part of a Christmas decoration that's been sitting in my garden all year. And then I started to look at it and I thought, oh no, this is a seed pod. And then I started to think about the plants, the woodland plants that I had seen growing in this part of my garden because it was kind of a shady part of my garden. So I have a lot of woodland plants in this area. And sure enough, it's the seed pod from a jack in the pulpit. And I would have shown that plant to the kids that work in my garden because it's such a cool plant to talk about. So not only is the plant cool with jack in the pulpit and you lift up the little leaf flap, but the seed pod is amazingly cool. So to show them something like that, have them hold it in their hand and look at it, that is awesome. And then the other part of a plant that I love to show kids is whenever my Hoya blooms. So in the presentation, I just had a picture of my Hoya blossom, which is so waxy. It, it just looks completely artificial. These star-shaped flowers, it's absolutely mesmerizing, and kids are fascinated by it. So my Hoya always gets brought out in the summertime, and even though it's a tropical plant, it can't handle that direct sun. So showing the picture of this beautiful flower, which can hook the kids, then leads into other conversations about Hoyas and other types of plants like that that can't handle that direct sunlight. So cool triggers the imagination, and that's what hooks young people in the garden. And I ended this lesson with a quote from Alice Earle. She was an American historian and the author of Old Time Gardens Newly Set Forth. She said, half the interest of a garden is the constant exercise of the imagination. To be content with the present and not striving about the future is fatal. So triggering that imagination, that excitement factor in kids is super important when you're working with kids in the garden. Lesson number three is that attachment is unique for every child. And I started this lesson out with a quote from John Muir, the naturalist and the wilderness advocate. He said, when one tugs at a single thing in nature, he finds it attached to the rest of the world. And I see our job as people who work with kids in the garden 
as providing interesting content to them in such a way that they have something they actually want to tug at. And then that will lead to other things in the garden. So if I've learned anything from working with students over the years, including my own four kids, it's that they form their own unique connection to the garden. And back when I worked in human resources, we were always trying to leverage people's strengths in order to boost their performance. And I found that the same principle works fabulously in the garden. So I'll say, hey, you're artistic. Let's make some garden art. You're handy. It's birdhouse building day. You don't enjoy getting sweaty? How about we go take some pictures of the garden? And I think the most important part of getting kids engaged in the garden is helping them find a way that they can find their own way to connection. And that may mean never harvesting or never planting a seed. There are other ways to connect to the garden. So I went through and I shared some examples of marrying strengths to assignments that you might have in the garden. My own son loved to do kind of woodworking things. So when a tree died in my garden, he got to chop it down and he spent weeks chopping this small tree down, but it thrilled him and it excited him and he felt like a construction guy in the garden cutting that tree down into small little chunks. It was a victory for him, and he could say he helped mom in the garden, which he did. And then I used that task as an opportunity to talk to him about trees and why they die and why that particular tree died and how the branches were formed on that tree and why they were that way. There were a lot of lessons that came out of that activity. I showed the example of a student gardener. I have a picture of him putting new wicker on the bottom of this wicker chair. So a few summers ago, I just bit the bullet, went on Amazon, bought all of this wicker caning. And as I was buying furniture on Craigslist that was damaged wicker furniture, I would bring it back home and the kids and I had learned how to repair wicker furniture with this caning. And so some of them actually got very, very good at it. And then we'd spray paint the furniture and you'd never know that there had been a repair done on that piece. Some of the artistic kids have done some of the garden art, the garden signs, the garden markers in my yard. I showed examples of rocks that had been written on with large Sharpies and then sprayed with polyurethane to label plants. These fun boxes that I found at Home Depot last year that had one side painted with chalkboard paint that we could then turn into all kinds of garden storage or garden planters and containers. Just completely tremendous. All these small little projects that help kids connect to the garden. Lesson number four is to target discretionary effort. So if you think about your effort as some of it being mandatory, right? I have to get this done. And then some of it being completely discretionary. I'm going to do this because I want to do it. I'm going to go the extra mile because I'm enjoying myself so much. If you can do that in the garden with kids, you know you've hit a home run. I stumbled on this great quote about resentment, and it's stuck with me forever. And it says, resentment is a gift you wish you wouldn't have given. And I never want kids to leave my garden going, ugh, I wish I wouldn't have come here today. I always wanted a way to find a connection for them, something that would be life-giving for them, and something that would tap in to that discretionary effort that they can give but they have to give it freely. 
And the one way that I have found is the most effective to get at discretionary effort is to give them lots of options and then ask this question, what do you want to do? So I give tons of options when we're in the garden, whether it's painting or art or some type of hardware or landscaping repair or seed starting or harvesting, whatever the task is. And I try to marry them to something that is suited for them. And then I showed a picture of someone holding this small little black colored tea. And I wanted to see if the people in the audience that day could identify what this item was. And I said, this is the most enjoyed activity of student gardeners that have worked in my garden. And the tea was a little connector for drip irrigation. And believe it or not, that is usually the most fought over activity in my garden. It's working with the drip irrigation. And the kids become trained and certified in that area. They learn everything they can about drip irrigation. They master the toolbox so they get to understand all of the things that are in the toolbox for drip irrigation and how it works. And for boys and girls, it's very exciting if you can correlate the what you're doing with drip irrigation to working with Legos because it translates very well. A lot of these things clip into place and there's little connectors for everything that you could possibly want to do, whether it's putting together a mister or some type of soaker line or watering hanging pots. There's a lot of autonomy and creativity that goes along with it. And it's so fun to learn about. One of the things we do right away in the spring is we'll do a walkthrough of the property. And after I've turned on the irrigation system, we walk through and we do this gardener best practice when you're working with drip irrigation, and that is to walk your property and turn on your ears because if there's a leak, you're going to hear it. You will hear the sound of water. So training the kids to listen for that and then find any leaks, they love that stuff. They're very good at it. So then I showed some pictures of some temporary irrigation sites that the kids had set up. Last year, I got some very large arborvitae, and when they were delivered onto my property, we weren't ready to set them in place yet. So I had the kids run a drip irrigation line over to those very large containers and make sure that they were going to get watered until we had a chance to plant them in the ground. I showed a picture of a fountain that I'd gotten on Craigslist, and I had the kids put it together. And then, of course, they're kids. So when I leave them alone and let them figure out how to do the project, this fountain, this concrete fountain, had come in three parts. There was the base, which looked like a a column, like a Greek column. Then there was the basin, and then there was this little cement statue. And how they had originally put it together in this photo was the basin was on the bottom, and then the column was on on top of that, and then this little statue was on top. So they didn't quite get the pieces together correctly, but it was a perfect example of letting them figure it out first, then giving corrective feedback and coaching, and then having them learn from that. So sometimes that's just as important as telling them what to do right off the bat. I love to give them some artistic license when it comes to doing things in the garden. And then I showed all the different fountains and things that are on my property that use water. The second most enjoyed activity is landscape lighting. They love replacing burnt out bulbs or putting in new lighting fixtures. Those are exciting things for kids and they're a big value add in the garden. The girls love to work on head planters. 
So I have these head planters that are in the garden, and we work with succulents and floral pins, and we create these elaborate hairdos, and they'll go through the garden and harvest different succulents that we can use. Some will be long and trailing for long-haired head planters and some beautiful rose-shaped succulents for the hair piece. Just lots of fun. I showed an example of some license plate art that we had done on the deck where I got this big piece of clear plexiglass. And then we had a fixed license plates that my family had collected through the years. And we affixed them to this plexiglass. And then we hung it on the deck as kind of a piece of art behind the outdoor sofa. And it was just charming, but it was exciting for the kids. They got to work with a drill, learn how to use kind of grommets to secure the huge piece of plexiglass to the fence. I showed a picture of my son putting in a rain chain. That was exciting. And then we did this competition where I had everyone go to Goodwill and find something that we could repurpose as a container in the garden. So everybody got, I don't know, five bucks, 10 bucks, something like that. And they were sent into Goodwill to find things that could be used as repurposed garden containers. And the winner was someone who had picked an old ice cream bucket. So it's this wooden ice cream bucket, and it says Sterling Freezer. It was six quart on the front, and it had this beautiful black foil label there. So we glued that down, and we polyurethaned over it, and it's just one of my favorite planters, and I grow lavender in it every year. It's just absolutely striking. I showed an example of how I have them put terracotta pots and lash them to the fence posts, and then inside the pot, I'll put some silverware that we've collected from Goodwill. And the whole point of the silverware is that if we don't have a garden tool handy, we can just quickly grab a fork or a knife and use that to weed or to dig in the garden. And then another example showed how I like to stack my terracotta pots and then line each of them with burlap. Sometimes I'll leave the burlap in as kind of a really cute, pretty little lining inside the terracotta pot. And then other times I'll use the burlap as a way to kind of stop soil from going out of the hole at the bottom of the terracotta pot. But the burlap serves so many purposes. It's beautiful. It's got this great design aesthetic. So the kids get used to working with burlap. It helps the pots not stick together when you're stacking them. And I think they look more beautiful when it's pot, burlap, pot, burlap, that kind of arrangement. And then there was one picture where I showed at the very top of these stacked terracotta pots how the very top pot had just pieces of string that were filled inside of it so that the birds could use that string to make their nests. So the kids, as they're, you know, living their lives throughout the gardening season, will just collect those little pieces of string, and then they'll bring them and they'll put them in those pots around the garden. They know exactly what they're for. And then, of course, there's fun tasks like creating a birdhouse or working with different ways to preserve your garden harvest. So last year, we came up with four different ways we wanted to try to preserve the garden harvest. So some of the kids put together an herb salt. Some of them were drying herbs in the microwave. Some of them were making compound butters with rosemary and butter or lavender and butter or thyme and butter. And then others were freezing herbs and ice cubes trays with olive oil. 
Lesson number five is something I called Noah had the right idea. And that is when I have kids that are helping in my garden or who are learning in my garden, I almost always have them be in teams of two or three, for sure two. It's more engaging to have two people. They can be a little competitive with one another. It makes time pass much more quickly. So I showed all of these examples of teams of two in the garden. Some were planting some of my first plantings of basil in the garden. So I had two girls working together. I had two guys working together unloading my cocoa bean mulch. I had two boys working together, and we were putting together these pillars for the cafe garden. My three kids were out on the deck harvesting together. It wasn't a solo activity making the salad that night. It was a group activity that makes it so much more exciting. And the varieties that make it into the salad will be much more diverse. The kids work together when they're spray painting. So if they're sprucing up some of the garden art or some of the ironwork in the garden. They always do that in teams of two. And then lesson number six is something that I learned from my kid's basketball coach. He has this thing where he says, sorry to interrupt. And then when that happens, everything stops and the kids all come together and they learn a lesson at that time. So I gave the example of I had bought this um, raised bed that had a screen bottom, which was fantastic for drainage, but it also meant that dirt, that soil was going to sift through the bottom. And so when I was having kids fill those raised beds, when I came back to check on them, I realized that the dirt was sifting through the bottom and I had a huge mess on my back stone patio. So it was a sorry to interrupt moment and everybody came together and we talked about why we would want garden soil to be sifted. And in this case, what we would do when we don't want the garden soil to be sifted out the bottom. And of course, we needed to line that with landscape fabric. So it was a great sorry to interrupt moment. Another great sorry to interrupt moment happened when we were harvesting. So when I'm harvesting, for instance, radish, that'll be one of the first things we harvest in the spring. We go in, we wash off the radishes, we cut the tops and the bottoms off so we end up with some radish bits and also some greens. We had a sorry to interrupt moment because one of the kids was gonna throw that away. So of course we don't want to do that. We wanna use that as compost to put those nutrients back in the soil. So that was another great sorry to interrupt moment. Another one that comes to mind is working with succulents, helping kids understand that they don't have a significant root mass to deal with. All of that water is stored in the stems and the leaves. So helping them understand that means that when they're putting together a succulent tapestry, whether it's my succulent wreath or some of my succulent planters outside, they know what they're doing and they know how to work with succulents. It's a great sorry to interrupt talking to kids about succulents. Lesson number seven has to do with helping kids feel ownership and pride in their work. One of the simplest ways I know to do this is to name gardens. So for instance, my neighbor across the street is from India and she has a little daycare. And every now and then in the summertime, she'll bring these little kids over. They're less than five years old and we'll put together little gardens, whether it's in a bird bath or some type of container. And I never just have them plant in those and walk away. We always plant in them. And then I make sure that we get some type of nameplate 
in that garden that says Maitri's garden or Siddharth's garden or whoever's garden, but so that they feel that ownership and pride. Yes, I made that garden and look, my name is on it. Another thing I'll do with kids when they weed in an area, you know, weeding might not be the most enjoyable task, but when they're done, they're going to put a popsicle stick in the ground that says weeded by Will, weeded by Emma, and they're going to feel that pride and ownership for that little patch that they tended. Lesson number eight has to do with using time and direction to your advantage. And I started this section out with a little story that I thought would be a very helpful lead-in to this theme. It's about a medieval knight, and late one afternoon, he was coming back to the castle, and he was just a sorry sight. He was all bruised, his horse was limping, he was like sitting sideways in the saddle, his armor was dented, he just looked like a hot mess. And the king sees him coming and rushes out to meet him, and he says, what on earth has happened to you? You're my best knight. And the knight says, oh, I have been working for you all day, and I have been robbing and pillaging your enemies to the west. And the king says, you've been doing what? And thinking that the king was hard of hearing, the knight replied, I've been robbing and pillaging your enemies to the west. And he says this much louder. And the king says, I don't have any enemies to the west. And the knight says, oh, well, I think you do now. So the moral to this story is that enthusiasm is not enough. So the kids are coming to your garden. And remember, they have this curiosity and this excitement, this overlapping area, those Venn diagrams between kids and gardeners. We share this curiosity and enthusiasm. But it's your job as the person that's directing the kids, that's leading the kids to provide a sense of direction. And part of that means that you're giving them an idea of how long the job is going to take. So when I'm working with kids in my garden, I have my Apple Watch and I will tell Suri, I want you to set an alarm every 15 minutes for the next two hours. And every 15 minutes, my watch beeps and I know it's time to change things up. So if I've had two kids weeding in an area, I'm going to relieve them of that duty and I'm going to have two more kids take their place. And then I'm going to give the two kids that were just doing that kind of not so fun job something really fun, something that they want to do. And maybe the two kids that take over that area, I'll say, you know, let's have a contest and see how many weeds you can pull out of this area now that these two have just finished. What have they missed with their tired eyes that you can see with fresh eyes? And as gardeners, we know this happens all the time, right? We get done gardening, tending an area, weeding an area, and we come back not two hours later and we realize there's this three-foot weed growing in this area that we did not see before. So rotating kids through, giving them time and direction and saying, guess what? You're going to do this for 15 minutes, no more than that, and then I'm going to come and give you something else to do. This requires you to be on your toes. And one of the things I love to tell people is when the kids first get there, do a walkthrough. And as you're walking through the garden, give them an idea of all the different things that they could potentially do that day in your garden. There's plenty of tasks. 
You don't want to get mired down in just one for an entire afternoon. It's boring. It's arduous. And no one's going to leave your garden going, oh my gosh, it was so fun. I just weeded for three hours. Something else I mentioned is lesson nine, which is help kids be comfortable in your garden. You know, I was done growing by the time I was 12. I was six feet tall by the time I was 12. And I have vivid memories of things that I had to do as a kid in junior high and high school that required me to crouch down or get into a desk that didn't fit or kneel. My Probably my least favorite thing to do would be to kneel on the ground without something to cushion my knees. I didn't like the sun. I don't like to get sunburned. I'm fair-skinned. So if some lady would have had me come out to her garden and had me toil out there for three hours on my knees without anything for the sun, I would have never become a gardener. So I say, help kids be comfortable in the garden. Give them buckets to sit on if you don't have little garden rockers. I love that Vertex rocker, and I have probably six of them in my garden. So when the kids are there helping me, everybody gets a garden rocker. My favorite tool is the Dig It. It is my favorite tool. I know that it's effective. I know how well it works, and I make sure that I have five or six of them where I keep my gardening supplies so that the kids can use them and also enjoy gardening more. And the final lesson that I shared is to embrace technology. So one of the things I love to do with kids when they're in my garden is have them go around and take pictures of my garden, especially taking pictures of things that they did, that they had an opportunity to work on. And I gave the example of having a child that had done some things in my garden, and then as I was rolling through some of the pictures this kid had taken, here he had taken a picture of the inside of my garbage can because during the day he had thrown something away. So I love this task for kids because it gives them a chance to use the technology that everybody has, all these kids have, because they, of course, have smartphones and they have cameras on their phones. And I get the pictures. They'll airdrop them to me, which is marvelous. But it does require some coaching on my part. I had to say, hey, I don't need to have a picture inside my garbage can. I'm looking for pretty things around my garden. Let's go back out and see if we can do even more pictures of the landscape of certain flowers. Let's take some close-ups. Let's take some wide shots in the garden. Some of those panoramic photos. I had one boy once who was so good at that. He could do those panoramic photos. I can never get that to work on my iPhone. And he did a great job. We had fun one time putting together a photo shoot of things that I'd harvested from the garden. So we did this beautiful photo shoot of fresh cherry tomatoes and basil that had been made into pesto and some garlic bulbs and Parmesan cheese, kind of a antipasto plate. And it was gorgeous. And the kids had fun staging that. And then, of course, I could use the pictures on my blog. So I loved it. I had these beautiful pictures of my garden harvest. So the kids learned, I learned, and we all reaped the benefits of that really fun, creative activity that was totally embracing technology, the cameras that are on their phones. I'll give you one more example of this. One time, we actually were digging in those huge arborvitae I was telling you about, and we hit the sprinkler line. And so one of the kids took a picture of that area and then used Skitch 
to put a text box over that photo and notate where the break in that line was so that if we have any future problems, we'll know exactly where that break in the line is in that row of Arbor Vitae. It was super helpful to me, and it was very fun for them because they got to use a photo app for a real purpose, for an authentic need in the garden. And that was it, my 10 lessons for getting kids to be engaged in the garden. Lesson one was to remember that you're teaching now. You're not teaching 100 years ago. This is not your grandma's garden helpers. These are kids that are super savvy, very sophisticated. They can take in lots of information, which of course leads to lesson two, which is be a cool finder. Pay attention to the really wonderful, cool things that are happening in horticulture. You can even just listen to the Garden News Roundup, and you'll probably hear a couple of cool things that'll even grab your excitement and curiosity, and then make sure you share them with kids because they can handle that information. And oftentimes, that helps them forge a bond to the garden. Lesson three, remember that every attachment is unique. Some kids may come and help you in the garden or work in your garden and never plant something, but they might do other things that are super beneficial to the garden, and those ancillary activities are their way to connect with the garden, and they're valuable. So don't underestimate that. Lesson four is targeting discretionary effort. And the only way you can do that is if you give kids some autonomy and some control over what it is they're going to do in your garden. I know you have more than one to do in your garden. So open up that task list and recognize that kids are very capable, probably more capable than you might first appreciate. So stretch that thought, stretch your expectations, and let go of some control. I have kids working with drip irrigation. I have kids repairing wicker furniture. We're making garden art together. Kids are resourceful, creative, energetic, and so willing to please. Lesson five, Noah had the right idea. Never have somebody out working by themselves. If you can, have two kids working at the same time. I always say, hey, have your friend come over and help. As long as they're getting the job done, as long as they're growing and learning in the garden together, I've never found that social interaction to be a problem. And if it is, you just switch partners and move on. Lesson six is use the term, sorry to interrupt. Interrupt kids when things aren't going right and use it as a teachable moment for everyone in your garden. And then don't make it about shame or blame. Keep it very positive and say, hey, this is a learning opportunity. We all learn and grow. And as gardeners, we're masters of trial and error. So you as the mentor, you as the leader, it's your job to step in and accelerate that learning and show them when there's a better way or when they're doing something wrong. Lesson seven is all about ownership and pride, and that's doing things like naming gardens that they create, marking areas that they've worked on, giving them a real chance to feel ownership over their work. Lesson eight is leveraging time and direction by parsing out your time together and clearly communicating what they need to do, and how long they'll be doing it, and then switching up those tasks very frequently, that's a pace and a variety that kids are used to nowadays. 
And I think that's why the sorry to interrupt method works so well. They're used to having to multitask. They're used to having to switch tasks quickly and to handle interruptions and learn how to build those coping skills. So that's just another day for them. They're very sophisticated. Lesson nine is make them comfortable. You know, one of the things I heard from Mike McGrath's podcast last summer is that mosquitoes aren't good flyers. So that's why on a windy day, you're not out there getting bit by mosquitoes because they can't navigate that wind. And the minute I heard that, I started to think about these huge fans that I had bought from Sam's Club when our air conditioner had died a few years ago. These are huge fans. I think they were like 40 bucks a piece, and they throw a massive amount of wind. And so last July, when I had the kids helping me in the garden and the mosquitoes were crazy that day, I took these huge fans and I plugged them into the garage with this huge extension cord, super long. I think it was like 70 feet of extension cord. And then I had these fans blowing directly on the kids in the area they were working. And it was just as effective as using mosquito repellent. They did not get bit mosquitoes are not good flyers. And so not only did it work for the kids, I'd made them comfortable. But for the rest of the summer, when the mosquitoes were super bad, I never gardened without carrying my huge, like two foot garden fan with me. Of course, it was nice to be cool. But my primary motivation was truly to keep the mosquitoes off of me because I had a huge infection that had gotten out of control thanks to a mosquito bite on my ankle last July. And I didn't want to risk getting bit. So making them comfortable, super important, makes for happier kids in the garden. And then finally, lesson 10 is embrace technology. I tell kids all the time, absolutely take pictures in this garden. Absolutely text your friend and say, hey, do you want to come on over and help me in this garden? If I'm taking one of my kids to basketball practice and I've got some kids doing something in my garden, I'll say, take a picture, send me an update, text me, I want to see what you're doing. I love incorporating that technology in my garden. It's been so helpful. So give it a try. And that's it. These are my 10 lessons for keeping kids engaged in the garden. And I'm excited to see the things that I'll learn this year. My kids are now 17, 15, 13, and 11, and they each have their own unique connection to the garden. And I learn from them every single season. Well, that's it for the show today. I hope you found my 10 lessons for how to keep kids engaged in the garden super helpful, very inspiring. I hope it's triggered some ideas in your mind about working with young people in your garden in 2017, whether it's your own garden, a schoolyard garden, or a public garden or a church garden, whatever it might be. I want to make sure before I close the show that I recognize the six women that make up the Listener Advisory Board and recognize them. These are women that were from the Facebook group for the show, the Listener Community, and they volunteered to help me out on the first Listener Advisory Board. It's a quarterly role. It lasts for four months. And these ladies have really offered fantastic feedback and suggestions to me. They're helping make sure that the show stays very listener-directed, and they're also being an immense source of support and help for me as I go into surgery on Monday, so I just can't thank them enough. And they are Beth Engel, Denise Pugh, Gardens in North Mississippi, and she's a contributing writer to Mississippi Gardener Magazine, Amy Fairbanks Von Atchen, 
Patricia Chandler Newport. She's the owner of Backyard Urban Gardens out of Kego Harbor, Michigan. Deb Gibson, Peggy Ann Montgomery. She's the brand manager at American Beauty's Native Plants. And she was also a guest on the show. And these ladies collectively have a conference call with me once a week. And if they can't attend the call, they listen to audio of the call and then share their feedback with me. I didn't know what to expect when I started a listener advisory board, and these gals have made it such a pleasant and wonderful experience. I owe them a debt of gratitude for their insight and encouragement. I want to thank my team at Podfly Productions, David Myers, Ein Kadena, and David Gregerson. When this show is finally aired on the 24th, I'll be about five days post my rotator cuff surgery. So without the help of these guys, this show just simply would not be able to be produced. So I put 100% of my faith in them for these next three episodes, and I know they're going to do a great job. Just a reminder, I'll have all of the information that I shared on the show today in the show notes for this episode over at my website. It's sixfootmama.com. It's the number six, F-T-M-A-M-A.com. It's the home of my podcast, the Still Growing Podcast, and you can find this episode in the menu. Just look for podcast. I'll also have all of the links to the articles that I referenced in the Garden News Roundup. And while you're there, go ahead and click on the Facebook group. That's also in the menu, and you can go ahead and join the group. I'd love to see you in the group. I'll be back in the group personally as soon as my recovery allows for it, and I look forward to meeting you then. And if you can, do me this one favor. Offer up a little prayer that my surgery goes well, that my recovery is smooth. I'm a little worried about it. I'm sure it will be fine. I've got a lot of help to help me with the kids in the house, and I can't wait to be back at full strength with use of my right arm. So I've got a couple of more episodes that are ready to go, and then by April, I hope to be back at it again. So that's what I'll be working on, recovery and back to health. Have a great week, everyone. Still Growing with Jennifer Ebling is a SixFootMama.com production made in lovely Maple Grove, Minnesota. Still Growing is a weekly gardening podcast dedicated to helping you and your garden grow.